0: inductees into the South Dakota Hall of Fame come from all backgrounds of life. But one thing they all have in common is their daily pursuit of their dreams. In this podcast, you will hear stories of the legacy of these inductees and how these dream chasers have impacted South Dakota in meaningful ways. Here's your host, Miles Beacom.
1: Today, I'm with Richard and Bob Vandenmark to talk about their father, Dr. Robert Vandenmark, who was inducted into the South Dakota Hall of Fame in 1980. And to start with, Richard, could I have you talk a little bit about your father's childhood and growing up? And it was in Alexandria, South Dakota,
2: if I remember. Uh, Well, he was born in 1913. His father was an attorney, and his grandfather was the clerk of courts in Hanson County. And his father was a, a politician also. And he was the state senator representing Hanson and McCook County. And in 19, and he was sort of associated with the progressive wing of the party, which was headed by then lieutenant governor Peter Norbeck. And in January of 1916, he was killed in an explosion in their house. So my father lost his father at the age of about two and a half. And his uh, And with his younger brother and his mother, they continue to live in Alexandria. Got a lot of support from the extended family, his grandparents, uh, Bosets, and his uncle Guy, who uh, he he subsequently joined in practice. But I think he, you know, that's that's obviously a big challenge to lose your father at that age. And, um, but he, I think had, kind of a normal childhood that you would have in Alexandria at the time. Um, his mother went back to college and uh, got her degree and then taught school. He eventually got his, uh, I, I think, was a lot of effort. He, he finished college and then he entered medical school. And so that's sort of, as best I can say, you know. He lived at the
0: YMCA uh, when he went to Sioux Falls College. That was his home uh, during his college years at year Sioux Falls. So you look at it today,
1: just an incredible person, all kinds of success. Uh, but you look at it, he lost his father when he was two. Mm-hmm. And that would be tough because for most people, uh, their parents are their idols. And so what a challenge that had to be growing up without a father. But you said, as you said, the extended family stepped up and, and helped. And then he goes to USF to college and he lives at the YMCA. And you look at that as a challenge where people today think they have a tough as they have to live in a
2: dorm. Hmm. Uh, no. So, uh, great story. Well, and he, I think he went to multiple colleges, yeah. actually. He ended up graduating from Sioux Falls College, but that, he, he was a, a rolling stone, shall we say. So did he, and then where did he go, to med school? He went to the University of South Dakota Medical School for two years, and then he went to Northwestern Medical School. And why did he go to Northwestern? Well, his, his uncle, Guy, had gone to Northwestern, and was from the class of, I think, 1904. About 1906. 1906. Yeah.
1: Okay. And did USD, their medical school, could they finish medical school at USD at the time? No.
0: So that's one of the
2: reasons that he left USD. Yeah, so, okay. yeah it was a two year school really until 74.
0: Uh, the first class graduated in 77, I think, in okay. the first four year. Okay. Uh, so he lived in Chicago. He lived at the Swedish hospital for room and board. And his night job was doing OB, delivering babies. And then, so you go to school during the day and then do his night job. So I was, I was telling Richard, he, he told me that uh, he uh, was supposed to take OB his fourth year at medical school, so he went down to registrar and So I, that's kind of my night job. I really don't need it. Oh yeah, you gotta take OB. My dad says, no, I don't, you don't understand. I really do a lot of deliveries. So how many did you last year? 400 deliveries last year <laughs> as a third year medical student. So she let him out of OB, he didn't have to take it that year. So. so he was an obstetrician in his second job. Well,
1: wow, that, that is something. And so school during the day and delivering
2: babies, 400 babies in the evening. Mm-hmm. And and I think he did that through the uh, Department of Health in Chicago. Yeah. Because he also did uh, restaurant inspections.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Really. Oh, yeah.
2: We, <laughs> we, there's a Walgreens in Michigan and in, in, um, Chicago called WAG's uh, and... Uh, he told me. He said, "You know," he said, "at the counter is the cleanest place in Chicago." He said, "You go to high-end restaurants, and they're horrible." But he said they can't do much, you know, behind the counter. So he had he, he had great expertise, and he he could tell every. And it was always funny when we go to Chicago uh, his children. He would always avoid certain restaurants, and it was based <laughs> on what he saw in 1930. But. Which at that point may or may not have had any relevance, but it was yeah. kind of amusing. Yeah. Did he ever? Did you ever think that, or did he ever share with you that
1: he loved the glamour of Chicago? And did he ever have intention to stay there versus come back to South Dakota?
2: I think they, they really loved Chicago. He, that's where he met my mother, and uh, they they loved Chicago. But I don't know that he had any no, desire to stay there. So what brought him back to Sioux Falls? Well, it's kind of an involved story. The in uh, not so involved. the he after he went he did his residency at the Mayo Clinic, after an internship at Passavant Memorial, in Chicago, and um, after his residency, he was the first assistant, and in 1943 he finished his residency. He, got a master's in orthopedic surgery from the university of Minnesota and was actually working on his PhD and he went into the army and he was sent to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was an Indian hospital and pretty much all the first assistants of some pretty prestigious programs were all there. And they had absolutely no idea why they were at this Indian hospital, but the native Americans got great deal of top rate medical services Mm -hmm. and, um, and ultimately they, they discovered they were, they were there in conjunction with Los Alamos, but they had no idea. And after one year, he was uh, he was transferred, they all moved out and their people behind them in their various programs came in and substituted for them. And he uh, was put in charge of a 360-bed unit in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. And he did that until the end of the war. And then at the end of the war, he was planning to join his uncle, guy and, and his brother, Walter, uh, subsequently in Sioux Falls in practice. The problem is he had never had basic training and the army would not discharge him until he had finished basic training. So he did Which all the think?
1: work with the army, but he didn't have his basic yeah. training, so, so he did totally that was up CS. back yeah. in. So yeah.
2: after some, th- there was a whole set of letters about all this. Uh, eventually, they gave him a week of basic training, and then he he joined. Yeah, role. it was quite a, like letters from Chan and. Oh yeah, he had, was, he had the entire, all the <laughs> The entire congressional delegation, he wrote uh, letters to help. So, yeah. but he did have to do a week of something. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not quite sure. What uh, about. Map reading and something. Yes, else. he had learned map reading. That's right.
1: Well, that's that's impressive though, because he had a couple challenges out there of requirements that were out there both in chicago uh and he was able to convince him that he didn't need to uh, learn about delivering babies since he delivered 400 in the past year and then here, basic training saying hey i need to write to some people because i'm done why, why put you through basic training at the end and, but he put in one week but that was a Huge cut from... No,
2: apparently. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not, we're not quite sure. That, that's he, that, that was the story. That's the story. Yeah. Okay. We, did, we didn't argue with it. And then when he came back to Sioux Falls,
0: and he partnered with your uncle, or mm-hmm. his uncle? Um, yes. uncle Guy who started, I think, in 1907. And he started general practice, and then uh, he joined the Army in World War One. Guy did. And he liked orthopedics but there really wasn't a specialty of orthopedics per se so he they gave him a choice of the story goes gave him a choice of being a gmo a surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon so he put on orthopedics as his third choice because he thought that's what they'd probably give him and that's what he got so world war one is what it was the beginning of orthopedics as we know now that's all the experience they got so
2: and he still had a general and which was not uncommon he still had a general practice until the, really in the 1930s. And that's really when he started specializing exclusively in orthopedics. Yeah. But that was not uncommon. And World War I had an enormous impact on the medical profession in terms of the yeah. development of specialties, which I don't think people fully understand.
0: Yeah. I've taken care of a few of, uh, patients he delivered, which is kind of interesting. That is. Yeah. And they have some interesting stories about a guy. So we'll leave it that. Well, that's at. another story. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be another time. So
1: he came back and partnered with his uncle. And can you share a little bit about how that changed in time? Because when he came back, was he at the specialty hospital? Children's No. Care, I, no.
2: The, um, uh, that time, um, they had the Sioux Falls clinic, which was built, uh, it stood at, uh, 11th in Minnesota on the Southwest corner. And it was built in 1921. And he guy was one of the founders of that, uh, uh and that's, that's where the, the locus of their practice was, but guy had started, um, children's clinics in conjunction with the Department of Health and, and um, the Elks Clubs, where they would go out in the country to deal, at that time, primarily, various episodes of various waves of polio mm-hmm. epidemics, primarily. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so my father got involved with that very early. I think he became, uh, he started teaching at the University of South Dakota Medical School at that time. Forty-seven, yeah, forty-seven, yeah, and um, I don't know when did he become editor of, that, of the South Dakota Journal of Medicine. Yeah, he did that for probably twenty-five years, I think. Yeah, so that was maybe a bit later. But he he got very involved in that, and it, 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 starting the uh, what was then called the crippled children's school and hospital really came out of the uh, the ward for polio victims primarily at sioux valley hospital and i would that probably started in the early 40s -hmm. and they had an entire ward devoted to that a lot of iron lungs and things (laughs) like that that were used and uh irene fisher coon who was uh, uncle guy's nurse really took charge of that Uh, and she was the one who started bringing in because these kids were often there for months. Um, she brought in teachers, uh, volunteer teachers, and it really was at that time. Of course, it, it reflects the agrarian uh, uh, time. I mean, it was predominantly agrarian farm families, and uh, he got. He, that's really where the idea of of a hosp- school and hospital really started. And so he was very involved. My father was very involved in that process, you know, fundraising, uh, really designing the programs there. And that didn't, I think that was uh, finished in 1952. Is that something about right? And my father became medical director of, of that hospital. And he was medical director for many years of that. And you, you look back and you just look at that
1: uh, drive that your father had to bring that in, the fundraising. I mean, that's not an easy task to do. But well,
2: there were a lot of people doing this. So. I mean, he was just one of many people. But still an incredible accomplishment, something that was really
1: needed yeah. uh, for those young young. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And then, Bob, you started working with your father. I started, I came back in 1982. So we, uh, and then he was teaching at the medical school. He started in 47, and then he told me in 1984, it was my turn. So I've been teaching at the medical school since then. In fact, I have a lecture on Friday I have to go give, but uh, he went a couple of times a year to give the talk and teach the medical students, it's a great place,
1: yeah. We continue to see a lot of changes with the medical school down at uh, USD. Yeah. And now with the new one that's out there, which not probably, what, 15 years old? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he probably never had a chance to see that then.
0: Nope. So what do you think he would think of the technology and the changes of, but he's seen oh, so much I, technology yeah. change in those years. I think, uh, I think the story that it, I was telling Richard that uh, I'd kind of forgotten about was, uh, you know, they've been trying to get a four-year medical school for years and because of funding uh, the politics of where it's going to be located at and they don't want Sioux Falls to have other Yankton, So it's kind of got complicated. And so uh, I think Governor Knipe was in charge, he mm-hmm. was governor that year so. They approached my dad about talking to the Board of Regents, to, to library the Board of Regents, which I thought was kind of odd because like, what, what would he know about this, you know? And, and I said, so what's the deal? He says, well, I know most of the people on the Board of Regents. They're my patients the family, so I kind of most of them. So he kind of went and lobbied them, which I think probably had a big deal with getting a four-year school started.
2: Well, and I think as editor of the South Dakota General, they were very strong advocates of the four-year school. Yeah. Interestingly, the South Dakota legislature approved a four-year school in 1945, but nothing happened for 25 years. Yeah. Is that because of funding or? Primarily, yeah. yeah, yeah. My father was pretty, the other thing that he was involved with he did a lot of lobbying with the state legislature getting funding and support for the for the disabled kids but also for their families because it was a real financially it was a big burden for these for these families and, and part of the reason you had a sort of a residential hospital and school was primarily a lot of farm families they, they just didn't have the ability to to adequately care for kids But that was a big issue for many years, getting funding from the state to, you know, provide wheelchairs for the kids and things like that. It was a big deal. And um, I think with with the start of the Kennedy administration in the 60s and 70s, you started to see much more federal funding for the disabled Mm -hmm. uh, that you didn't have before. Up to then, it was more of a state responsibility. So when you look back and you see that your father He he was,
1: you joined, he was 69 years old when you joined him, if if my math was right, right around there. And uh, then you look at, he was a faculty member until he was uh, was 78 Mm -hmm. years old, right around that time frame. And he's written 138 articles for medical publications. Uh, And he was also 80, as 80 years old, and still a faculty member down at USD Medical School. When you look back at that, what do you think? I mean, that's incredible to be still at the top of your game and helping kids and students
0: throughout South Dakota until yeah. you're 80 years old. It was real passion for him. He uh, he didn't sleep mm. much, put it that way.
2: <laughs> yeah, he really re- remarkably needed a remarkably a little sleep. Yeah. I wish I had that. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you if
0: that rolled down to No, no, no unfortunately, not. no, uh, not, not to that degree. Yeah.
1: What do you think is the thing that most impresses you
0: with what your father's accomplished? Okay. I think uh, I think the, the I think the biggest legacy is what he's done for the medical school and medical care in South Dakota. I think that's mm-hmm. just uh, a large a large ticket item. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Helping four-year school.
1: Could you imagine the state not having a four-year medical school yeah, today? Yeah. And the, just the need that we have for nurses and doctors as well. Yeah. yeah I great. think you'd be very
0: proud of what's going on. So.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'd, I've always, I was always impressed with his discipline. He was a very disciplined person. I mean, he, when he you'd have a huge surgical schedule. He was up at 4.35 in the morning going through every case mm-hmm. before he would show up. But, and it was, as I say, he had an enormous discipline, but he also had an enormous amount of empathy for people. He, he really was empathetic far more than you, you typically see, don't you think? Mm-hmm. What do you think his biggest challenge in life was? I, I couldn't tell you. He had all kinds of challenges and frustrations, which maybe are... The same or maybe not. Um, but I, I, I don't think I could say what his biggest. Thing. Yeah, I think. It probably would depend on, yeah, and even he would probably change that over over yeah. time. Yeah. But. I think coming
0: up, you know, having your father die at that young age and, and uh, kind of soldiering on, you know, it's uh, like yeah. Richard says, a lot of discipline to do that. Uh, absolutely. I just couldn't imagine uh, yeah. not having my father when I was. After
1: two years of age, I mean, that's a very difficult thing. What do you think he would like the people of South Dakota to remember about him?
0: Uh, That he was a good
2: doctor and cared for people. I think that's right.
1: I I just think it's amazing, all the work that he put in Uh, for the med school, uh, children's care hospital. Uh, just being involved with the medical uh, school as well and the faculty, uh, the editor, uh, those are all time consuming things mm-hmm. where, yeah. you, you know, he could have done a lot of other things during that period of time and he knew that needed to be done and he stepped forward and I just think it's a, just an amazing trait. Yeah.
2: When we found this out after, uh, he had died, a floor nurse. In, in orthopedics, they told, told this to my mother. Apparently, over Christmas, he had had um, a young native girl as a patient who was over the holidays. And this is a sort of thing that I think is not uncommon with my father. On Christmas Eve, he went out and bought a dowel and brought it into a room and just left it there and took off. And the nurse had seen this and was like, well, this is interesting. So the next morning he came in and well, Santa Claus brought this. Isn't that wonderful? So mm-hmm. that was a great, great story of
1: sharing and. Yeah. And, uh, that, and that's the way he was. I, all I want to do, Richard and Bob, is say thank you very much for sharing these stories. Uh, it's incredible what your father has done and what he accomplished, and uh, he's truly changed South Dakota, and the, the medical side and I think uh, the giving side of mm-hmm. South Dakota as well. So thank
2: you for sharing these stories. You bet, thank Bob. you. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. See you.
0: back. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the South Dakota Hall of Fame and these dream chasers, visit our website at www.sdexcellence.org and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.